morning. It's good to see all of you. Uh, my name's Terry. I'm one of the pastors here. I, I was like, I don't want that to end. <laughs> but it doesn't have to end. We're going to continue to worship the Lord by the opening of his word. Um, but yeah, what a sweet time to just of, of coming together as his people. Let's go ahead and, and pray to the Lord before we open up the word together. Lord, thank you so much for who you are and what you mean to each one of us. God, I pray for everyone here as we take a step closer to you today in our hearts and our minds um, with all that we have. Lord, we can't do it on our own, but with your strength and with your guidance, with your word, your spirit, and your truth, Lord, we can, um, we can face anything. Uh, you know what we're facing, and we can face anything with you. As we turn to your word, Lord, please sharpen us with it and help make a difference in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're in a series called Choose Wisely. I got to pick the king that I got to preach on, but I, I didn't get to pick whatever I want to preach on, so it was kind of nice. I like having some parameters. So I kind of looked through, I found King Asa. Um, there's probably, you know, five of you that know every detail about King Asa's life. But like, like me, I did not know anything about King Asa, <laughs> even though I'm sure I read his life in the past. But um, we're going to study King Asa today. And the theme verse was spoken over King Asa's life at a time when he was foolish. It's hard to pin down King Asa as a good king or a bad king. He's generally thought of as a reformer and a good king. So I want to say that up front. I don't want to be too hard on him. But he definitely drifts at the end. And um, there's this verse that's spoken over King Asa when he does something really foolish. And I found it so relatable. But I want us to start with a theme verse. It comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9. It'll be on the screen. For the eyes of the Lord, eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. And that's still true today, that the eyes of the Lord are seeking and roaming and looking and watching throughout the whole earth. And the Lord wants to show himself strong to those who are wholehearted, wholeheartedly devoted to him. So we're going to try to unpack a pretty big topic, which is how are you devoted to God in your heart? And when are you sometimes half-hearted? When do you compartmentalize your life and maybe kind of drift? And so that's the, this idea that we want to think through when it comes to King Asa's life. Um, if we want to know who King Asa is, we can actually turn to the Gospel of Matthew, where we find where he fits in the line of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, reads this way. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, as the list goes, it becomes more uh, like unknown, right? Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. And so 
Asa's father is Abijah. Not the best example, but there was some good in Abijah's life as well. Rehoboam was not the best king of Judah. He, He was involved in the divided, the kingdom dividing. But Asa's um, great-grandfather was Solomon, who built the temple. Imagine if out on the playground, you see this massive temple off in the distance. You're like, yeah, my, uh, grandfa- my great-grandfather built that. And they'd be like, yeah, right, sure. He'd be like, no, my great-grandfather built this temple. And he's like, not only that, my great-great-grandfather is King David. They'd probably just like call him out for just making stuff up at this point. But that's who Asa is. His great-great-grandfather is King David. And that's, interestingly, when he starts out, that's who he's compared to. It's called his father David. He's like his father David, but it's actually his great-great-grandfather. And that's how he starts. He starts with this amazing place of turning the kingdom of Judah back to God. Now, if you turn to 1 Kings, you'll just see a few verses about King Asa. But if you open up to Chronicles, which is where we'll be today, you can open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 14. You'll find three pretty detailed chapters all about King Asa and his reign. Chapter 14, 15, and 16. And so I want to just give a high-level arc, uh, just kind of an overview of his life, the high points, the low points. I think you'll find King Asa to be relatable because he does a lot of great things, but then he, he does some things that are almost confusing, like why would he do that after all that he's experienced with God's faithfulness? Um, but we're going to look at this. Uh, king Asa, as he becomes king, he, it says that there was a decade, 10 years of rest. So King Asa's reign begins with 10 years of rest. And he uses it wisely. He rebuilds, kind of fortifies the cities, kind of prepares. He, he does some cleansing. He starts to kind of try to diminish idolatry of the time. We're not exactly sure what it was about Asa that made him do the right thing, but he does. That's, he starts in the right place. And so he has this 10 years of rest with the people. And his, his kingdom's going pretty well. And then we'll look at 2 Chronicles chapter 4, verse 8. It'll be on the screen. After a decade of peace, Asa leads Judah against a foreign nation. Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah, equipped with large shields and with spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, armed with small shields and with bows. I think it's funny how it's noted The tribe of Benjamin has the small shields. (laughs) The tribe of Judah has the large shields. But the the tribe of Benjamin, they have these bows. So you can almost see that they're sort of, at this point, there's hundreds of thousands of them. And they're dividing them in their skills. It says that all these were brave fighting men. Pretty cool. And then the next verse, in verse 9. Zerah the Cushite marched out against them with an army of thousands upon thousands. Some translations say million. A million soldiers came out against them. 
But we know it's just like they would look out and just see a, a sea of warriors coming at them. And while they were many, they were way outnumbered. Not only that, but this group had 300 chariots, and they came as far as Marishah. Asa went out to meet him, King Aram, and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephatha near Marishah. So you can kind of see the stages set there in this valley. The king of Judah, Asa, has his men. They're brave, but they're not a big group compared to what, is, what they're facing. And then in verse 11, we see what happens next. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you and in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. So this is king, the king of Judah praying to the Lord on the battlefield. And the Lord hears him. The next verse is that the Lord struck down the Cushites and they started to run. And this victory leads King Asa to kind of a great victory with the Lord behind him. And, and the scriptures are very specific to say it was the Lord who struck down the Cushites. And then we see what happens next. You gotta go to chapter 15, verse one. I told you we're gonna move kind of quick. Just, these are just the highlights of King Asa. He's starting off pretty good. Um, the spirit of God came to Azariah, son of Oded. We don't know too much about him. He shows up a couple times in the Bible, but here he does. He shows up on the battlefield to speak to King Asa. He went out to meet Asa and he said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Azariah is reminding Judah and the people and King Asa that this, this relationship, there's some conditions to how they relate to God at this time. If they seek him, he will be their strength. But if they forsake God, God will forsake them. That sounds uncomfortable to me. I mean, I feel like I've forsaken the Lord. I mean, at least I have that feeling. And if I forsake him, is he gonna forsake me? So how do we, how do we understand that? One of the ways to understand it is, and it's a kind of a big theme of this whole series, is that the way the people of Israel got the kings is that back when Samuel was their leader, uh, the people of Israel came to Samuel and they said, we want a king to lord over us like the other nations around us have a king. Samuel was offended and he went to the Lord. He said, Lord, they're offending me as their leader. And the Lord said to Samuel, they're not, offending, they're not offending you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their God. And in fact, whenever they have a king, if he's a good king, they'll see prosperity. If he's not a good king, they're on their own. I mean, that's essentially what he was saying. He didn't totally forsake them, but he wanted them to learn a lesson. 
that when they wanted an earthly leader over them, they were gonna experience uh, this as a unified people. So that helps us understand when we see a king forsaking God, it really comes to reflect on the whole people. They're seen as one. So when the king rejects God, God forsakes the whole unit of people. And that's helpful, I think, for us to think about. I mean, what if our wholeheartedness was based on our president? We want to keep ourselves at great distance. We'd have to go back like decades into our presidential history to maybe find a president that we wanted to wholeheartedly align with, right? And even then, could we even find one? No. So this idea that the people are seen as one with the king is a big concept where God was teaching them a lesson. If you want to put a man over you as Lord, you're going to experience that. And at times it's going to be okay, but at times it's going to be hard. So what does Azariah do? He, he, or what does Asa do? He hears this kind of warning almost from Azariah. In verse 8, when Asa heard the words and the prophecy of Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. He removed the detestable idols from the whole land of Judah and Benjamin and from the towns he had captured in the hills of Ephraim. He repaired the altar of the Lord, his great-grandfather's altar that his great-grandfather Solomon had built, he repaired it. And this altar that was in front of the portico of the Lord's temple. And then King Asa gathered all the people of Judah, all the people of Benjamin, even some of the, at this time, as you know, if you're tracking along with us, there were two, uh, the nation of Israel essentially was at civil war. Most of the tribes were with the kings of Israel, and then Judah and Benjamin were with the tribe of Judah. And there were two separate kings. And as, a, as like a whole sort of nation or as a whole people, they were in civil war. And so um, Judah was the line of King Asa. And he called all the people of Judah, all the people of Benjamin. Interestingly, scripture says that were, there were some defectors from the other tribes of Israel that came over and joined Judah at this time. He gathers them at the temple in Jerusalem Listen to verse 11. At that time, they sacrificed to the Lord 700 head of cattle and 7,000 sheep and goats for the plunder, or from the plunder they had brought back. And then verse 12, they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their ancestors, with all their heart and soul. And we go to verse 14, 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verse 14. They took an oath to the Lord with loud acclamation, with shouting and with trumpets, maybe a saxophone in there, and horns. All Judah rejoiced about the oath because they had sworn it wholeheartedly. They sought God eagerly and he was found by them. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. It says that if there was anyone in there that wasn't on the same page, they were actually put to death. Uh, we get this picture, really, that the people are totally unified under King Asa and, and this time of worship. This is the, the peak of King Asa's reign. Chapter 16 is his end, which is kind of like this demise, this drift. His wholehearted devotion drifts into half-hearted. He brought reform, 
but he didn't end that well. I mean, those are the facts. What happened was the king of Israel, King Basha, started to attack the king of Judah, King Asa. And King Asa had an idea. He's like, I'm going to take all the gold and silver out of the temple. That's not good. But that was his idea. I'm going to take all the gold and the silver out of the temple. I'm going to give it to this foreign king, King Aram. And I'm going to ask him to break his treaty with King Basha. It's kind of like my brother. And, And then maybe that will relieve the pressure of King Basha attacking Um, His plan works. So I was like, oh, this is great. Things are going well. King Basha retreats. But then someone else visits King Asa. We have Hanani, the seer. Hanani, the seer. He sees. He sees what's happening. And after leading the people into this beautiful covenantal worship, King Asa um, is confronted by his own decision-making. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 7, at that time, Hananiah the seer came to see Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you relied on the king of Aram and not on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Aram has escaped from your hand. And Hananiah continues, 2 Chronicles Uh, 16 verse 9, and this is our theme verse for the day. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You have done a foolish thing. And from now on, you will be at war. And how does Asa respond to this moment of correction? Verse 10 Asa was angry with the seer because of this. He was so enraged that he put him in prison and at the same time he took out his anger, Asa brutally oppressed some of the people. And then very quickly it shifts to the end. Of, he's only got three chapters coming to an end quick. Um, chapter 16, verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was afflicted with a disease in his feet. And though his disease was severe, even in his illness, he did not seek help from the Lord, but only from the physicians. So after these amazing times of a decade of rest, of this reform and revival, uh, sacrificial worship, bringing the people down to a person, entering into the covenant again. We are gonna be wholehearted in our devotion to the Lord. And then very quickly, we see that this seems to be a half-hearted end to King Asa. So what do we learn from King Asa? As I said, I think he's a little relatable in the sense that, uh, you know, when you stub your toe and you're like, ah, it'll be fine. You don't even like worry about it, right? He gets a foot disease. It ends up being his demise, his death. And he doesn't go to the Lord with it. It's interesting. I want to lock in on this theme verse again that comes at a time of foolishness in Asa's life. And I want to read it over you and think about in your own life. For the eyes of the Lord roam 
throughout the earth to show himself strong for those who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. What stood in the way of King Asa's hard-heartedness is what stood in the way of his whole, wholeheartedness, and I would say he, when he was confronted, he was prideful, and he did not change when someone called something out in his life. He didn't humble himself to the possibility that this person was calling out some level of compartmentalization in his life. And we face that same challenge of half-hearted moments where we tend to compartmentalize our faith and our lives. Uh, we will go through the course of a week and think about your own life. I mean, I, I won't speak for you, but I know that I will go through some parts of my day where I kind of forget about God. I'm still experiencing his goodness. He's still in me but I'm not consciously really paying attention to him. And we tend to kind of go through life in compartments. We'll go to church, we'll worship, and then Monday morning when we come to work, we won't even remember, except for maybe that one story that that someone said the day before. And that's okay, you know, I understand that. But we go through the course even of a week where we we face compartmentalization. we go to the supermarket and we get in line and we're upset because it's not running efficiently, right? And where's God <laughs> in that moment? Where, is he with us? Are we with him? Did we completely leave him out of this situation? Well, how do we handle that? Should we ask God in the moment to speed up the checkout line? I mean, how do you navigate the, the reality of everyday life um, without falling into the trap of compartmentalization? What is compartmentalization? It's when we create a compartment or an aspect or a part or a pocket of our life that we try to keep insulated from everything else. We're really good at this. In fact, it's not even a bad trait altogether. Like compartmentalization is, makes us create amazing things. Like we can focus on finishing that painting. The rest of the world doesn't exist while we finish that painting. And then a work of art comes out of that. So there are some aspects of compartmentalization that are healthy, and that's good. But when it comes to our faith, um, we can really start to lose track of it if we think we can keep God out of certain parts of our life. I was thinking about, when have I experienced compartmentalization? And I I thought about being in a a compartment of a little train when I was a kid at the Wilmington Western Railroad, and then I was just thinking about the word compartment, and then it reminded me of this crazy story that's kind of embarrassing. And I was like, uh, okay, I'll tell it. <laughs> so this, this doesn't shed the best on me, but you, you all, it, it all turned out fine in the end. Um, my wife, Libby, and I, she had an ailment, and we had to go to the hospital. Went into the ER. They were trying to figure out what it was. It was pretty severe, severe pain. And they said, well, let's try to navigate it with this medication it was already late at night. Have you gone to the ER like, and it's already like 1 a.m.? It was one of those situations. We had two little kids. Um, we were in the ER trying to figure out what was happening. She was, you know, hurting and in pain. And, uh, you know, what do you do? You, as a 
husband or a helper in the situation. You're trying to be helpful. Um, but they gave some medication. They said, just let's everybody get a rest for the night. We'll kind of revisit it in the morning, see, see if this deals with it. And so Libby's like, okay, just go home. You know, we had two little kids at this time. Go home, get some rest, come back in the morning, and we'll go from there. So I'm like, all right, I'll go home. My two kids are actually at my grandparents' house, or their grandparents' house. My parents, or her parents. And uh, we, so I went home. <laughs> I fall asleep. The next thing I know, I hear this banging, boom, 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 on my window in my master bedroom. It's, mind you, it's on the second floor. And mind you, that window is like, there's a drop-off by that window. And I'm like, who is banging on this window? And how are they doing that? So I'm awakened, just like startled, go to the window, it's my brother-in-law, Ryan, on a ladder, saying, hey, (laughs) Libby's going into surgery, you need to get to the hospital. It all turned out fine in the end. I know this does not shed so well on me. (laughs) So what happened was, I went home, I fell asleep. I was in this little compartment of the cozy sleep, middle of the night, 3 a.m., 4 a.m., Libby calls me, calls me, calls me. I'm not answering. I'm not hearing. She calls her sister, Joanna. Joanna says to Ryan, go over there. You got to wake Terry up. Ryan, best brother-in-law in in the world, he has the the foresight to grab a ladder, put it on his car, (laughs) come over, put the ladder next to my window and wake me up. And I (laughs) I got to her surgery just in time to like give her a kiss and good luck with that. Say a prayer. <laughs> Say a prayer and got to see her before she went into surgery. You know, this is the way life works sometimes. So I tried to, you know, I, I wasn't consciously compartmentalizing myself from the scene. I was subconsciously compartmentalized in that, in that example. But it reminded me of what we try to do with God sometimes. We think we can just keep him out of this space. But the scripture says he's always looking, he's always searching. John, John chapter four talks about he's searching desperately for worshipers to seek him and worship him in spirit and truth. He's still looking for that, to reveal himself strong to the wholehearted. Why do we do it? Why do we compartmentalize? I wanna leave you with this picture um, from a book called Mere Christianity uh, by C.S. Lewis. In the book, C.S. Lewis describes this picture of what it means to live sort of an uncompartmentalized life, a holistic life of faith in all the different ways. And he actually borrows the picture from George MacDonald. I remember reading this in high school, and now I gave it to my kids in high school to read. But as I read it, I want you to think about your, your own life. Where are you compartmentalizing? Maybe a room or an aspect of your life. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house 
from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. He was trying to describe how Jesus, through the Spirit, comes and dwells in our hearts. And I thought about that picture in light of half-hearted faith. And I thought, how can we even be half-hearted if he's in our heart? Or how can we try to compartmentalize him to not be part of a certain aspect or a certain moment or scene in our life? if he is actually in our hearts and his spirit is always present in our lives. It, it makes compartmentalization actually like a falsity that it's like when I fell asleep, you know, we cannot compartmentalize ourselves from God who's always with us. And so we need to seek a life where Jesus is at home in all aspects and areas of our life. This is really uncomfortable. I'll give you kind of just a a challenge, which is stop compartmentalizing and be wholehearted. I say that noting that it's easier said than done. You can't do it on your own strength. And at times you're gonna not get it just right. But that's what happened in scripture with King Asa. He needed someone to tell him in Hanani Stop compartmentalizing your faith. And King Asa was prideful in that moment. He didn't humble himself. But we can relate to that, right? And so wholehearted devotion is inviting Jesus into every room, even the ordinary and difficult ones, and yielding to his rule and his way. And I want to just stop and unpack this a little bit. I think that when it comes to wholehearted faith, the practice of bringing Jesus into the ordinary and the difficult, I think is where we'll find a lot of fruitfulness in living a more continuous faith in him. You know, the opportunity to make every moment holy, the opportunity to you know, be changing a diaper and just sensing that God has kind of put you in this place for that opportunity or that challenge, whatever it is. And in the hardest moment, uh, what we experience in Jesus is different than what the people of Israel experienced. With Jesus, we have someone who will never forsake us, even when at times we neglect him, he won't neglect us. So that's amazing. So as we enter into this uh, closing time of prayer, I want to just invite you to bow your heads, invite some of the musicians back to lead us in instrumentals and possibly a song. Um, And I'll guide you through a time of prayer here where I want to give you some space to pray. Um, First, I want to invite you to invite Jesus into your life as your Savior. If you've never experienced Jesus as, as your Lord and Savior, your true King, 
It's what we call the gospel. The gospel is good news that humanity can be saved from the penalty of, of our sin, receive adoption into the family of God as a redeemed child of God, and experience eternal life through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to experience that fullness through the abiding Holy Spirit as he comes into us and we abide or we, we remain with him in faith. So I wanna invite you, if you've never invited Jesus into your life as savior, to do that. I also would encourage you to identify a room in your heart, a chamber or a compartment where Jesus isn't yet fully king and begin the process of inviting him into that room and allowing him to tear down and rebuild the room in his way. You can use this guided prayer as a way to uh, pray about this. First, begin telling God what you love about him. Next, ask God to help you identify the room of your heart that needs his attention. And maybe ask yourself, would you invite him in? And now ask God what he wants you to do today or this week to further deepen your wholehearted devotion to him.